Welcome to The Thoughtful Technosapien, balancing the technology tensions of our time. Today on your show, we continue with a mini-series within the Career Buzz broadcast and podcast called The Thoughtful Technosapien. In it, we explore our evolving relationship with technology at all levels, personal, organizational, and societal. And today, in particular, we focus on how this plays out within the global coronavirus pandemic and talk about engineering in times of crisis. A bit about the name, the techno in Technosapien refers to the use of technology. When you think of technology as tools, you see that tool usage is arguably the most defining characteristic of our species. And sapiens, well, we as a species have co-evolved with our tools and technology. Today we find ourselves at a point in history seeing everywhere the promise and the perils of our technologies. In the Thoughtful Technosapien, we talk to people at the intersection of profound technology tensions. We explore how they and you can be more thoughtful in relationship with technology. We seek ways to avoid technology misuse and unintended consequences and to ensure technology is helping us create the world we want to see. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. About me, I spent 10 years in an engineering career before changing careers to counseling and career management. I now lead a team of professional career counselors at CareerCycles.com. I co-founded a career tech company, One Life Tools, and teach career management to engineering students at University of Toronto. I've stayed active in the engineering community and am involved with Engineering Change Lab, a catalyst for change in the engineering community who collaborated on this episode. I'm pleased to be your host today on the Thoughtful Technosapien. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by Jerry Buckwalter, Chief Operating and Strategy Officer at American Society of Civil Engineers. Jerry's been a member of the ASCE Industry Leaders Council and directs a strategic project called Future World Vision. This is where ASCE is creating a virtual and interactive computer model to assess potential built environments 50 years into the future. Before joining ASCE, Jerry worked as Director of Corporate Strategy at Northrop Grumman, a U.S.-based global aerospace defense and security company. He was also a member of the National Infrastructure Advisory Council for four years reporting to the White House. Jerry Buckwalter joins me by phone from his home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Jerry, to the Thoughtful Technosapien. Thank you, Mark. Pleased to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you about your work and the technology tensions you focus on related to infrastructure and civil engineering and future cities and even floating cities. Um, but first, we're recording this interview near the beginning of the coronavirus crisis with so much change and disruption to the world of work. How, how are you doing personally and professionally? Well, I'm doing just fine. Um, working from home, as many, many people are, um, it's, it's funny in the, uh, the project that you referenced that we'll be talking about later, we had anticipate, anticipated some future scenarios, one of which was dispersed settlements where people were removed from each other by larger geographic distances than are what we would consider to be uh, normal commuting distances. And lo and behold, here I am. Uh, living in the middle of it uh, in real time as of a week and a half ago. And so I'm, I'm dealing with it just like everyone else, managing a virtual workload um, for those of us in this role. 
Uh, I think my email load went to triple or quadruple volume uh, during last week as everyone was not in meetings and not traveling and and all communicating. Um, But we're dealing with it. And as an association, American Society of Civil Engineers, we've been dealing with it as well as we get used to teleworking and also converting a lot of our assets into things that would be appropriate for this time. Right on. And, and, you know, here we are conducting this interview with all that's on your mind in that email uh, pile up. What made you choose to be here right now on the interview, thinking that this is a pretty important topic? Well, I think it's one of those moments in time where the changes in our society, our infrastructure, the way we communicate, we're going to change anyway. This simply accelerates it. And so engineers, as a professional community, have a key role to play. And this is a great opportunity for an entire industry, an entire profession, to step up and simply accelerate what they would have had to do over the next 10 years anyway. Um, Talk about infrastructure. Your executive director, Tom Smith, says on, on your website, in this time of crisis, it's crucial we not forget about the systems that keep our economy moving and are so critical to public health and safety, including transit, highways, ports and airports, water systems, the power grid, and more. Um, so, Jerry, what, what are the crisis-related challenges that you and your organization are dealing with right now uh, in the global pandemic? So, we're dealing with it in a couple different ways. One, for the benefit of those civil engineers who are critical to society, we are doing a lot of things that they have some time to do right now uh, under social distancing paradigms. Uh, so courses that engineers need that we conduct as continuing education or webinars, many civil engineers have some time for that right now. We want to make sure we offer that sometimes at discounted rates so that we can use this time to get up to speed as a profession. We're also using what I would call critical assets. Uh, Like if you went to our website, you would see a a whole bunch of COVID-19 related resources that we're giving to people. We've actually initiated a policy last week where, whereby those resources are open to the world and you don't even need a membership in our society and for 30 days, possibly longer. We have opened those resources for the world to use uh, just kind of as our our communal global duty. Um, We've run professional-wide surveys to see what are the problems people in this profession are experiencing in their practice, in their work, in their companies, so that we can get that out to everyone uh, to take advantage of the resources. But I would say we're doing that because the profession itself is so important. As Tom mentioned in the quote that you were reading, civil engineers, for instance, have to think about things like the hotspot that is New York City and that the healthcare workers, because lots of people in New York City don't actually own cars, still have to get to work at the hospital on the subway. So what does that look like under social distancing phenomena 
in subways that are healthy enough to keep our healthcare workers to the medical facilities in New York City. And people just sometimes don't think about the people behind the curtain, if you will, engineers who have to design and redesign a subway system and its use for a case exactly like this. And and one of the things we actually talked about this morning that we're probably going to put up on our website is a just a reminder how important civil engineers are when we read historically the story during the typhoid pandemic of hundreds of years ago and a civil engineer working on sanitation and water systems discovered the source the source we now call typhoid mary based upon analysis of water and water supply and wastewater just a classic example of what goes on behind the scenes with engineers have such a big role to play in the quality of life for people. That's a great story. I've heard that story about Typhoid Mary, too, Jerry. And just as you're saying that, listeners might not be familiar with all the things that civil engineers are involved with. You've mentioned transit. You mentioned water and wastewater. Um, We think of dams. We can think of of bridges. Just paint a quick picture for listeners. What what is the scope of, of civil engineering? Well, civil engineering as a discipline started many, many years ago, and by definition was almost all engineering if it wasn't military. In other words, it was defined as the opposite of military engineering. So it becomes a term that gets confusing because a civil engineer is also, uh, civil engineering is also comprised of many disciplines. For example, we have structural engineers, the ones who create tall building structures and who have to worry about earthquake zones and leading advances in whether that building stays up during an earthquake, for instance. We have geotech engineers uh, who work at the soils level. We have construction engineers. We have water and wastewater engineers, transportation engineers. So all of those, there's about a dozen disciplines that make up the body of people we call civil engineering. And it's essentially all engineers that design and then build infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I'm also thinking and talking more broadly than most people think. So as you mentioned, Mark, people automatically think about transportation. That's an obvious one. Or water. Or think of power and the grid. But it goes deeper than that. We Our telecom infrastructure that creates the mechanisms we're using today is made up of physical assets that broadcast this signal. And so... Infrastructure is something that goes right uh, from the house you live in to every form of food and shelter that make up the basic need of society. And and you mentioned, for instance, uh, some of that infrastructure is vulnerable to crises. And here we are in the midst of a, a global crisis. What are the opportunities here for the engineering community broadly and civil engineers to, to take responsibility, to show what we might call technological stewardship 
in the face of these kinds of global crises. You know, and even in this crisis, we've noticed there's a difference between how do you prepare for a global crisis and then what do you do once it arrives? So I would say uh, I'm proud to be associated with a profession that takes its literally its moral obligations so seriously. Canon of ethics for civil engineering, you will see repeated over and over again that we do what we do for the public health, safety, welfare, and ethic. ethics. Societal benefit is what civil engineering is all about. And when you think about that, over the last several years, the civil engineering community has embraced the responsibility of not just designing and building all these forms of infrastructure that I talked about, just because somebody specification, some owner operator of a piece of infrastructure says build it, but they've embraced the fact that as, as a component of society that's responsible for the public health, safety, and welfare. What that also means is we have to embrace all the thinking, the anticipation of what it means to do that in a resilient and a sustainable way. So you will see those two words emerging in our canon of ethics, that not only do we do it, but we do it with sustainability and resilience in mind in everything we do. Now, sustainability is a very broad term. We instantly think of the crisis associated with climate change, and that's good that we do so. But we also think about resilience, which is not, which has two parts to it. One, it's about not only is it sustainable, but is it fragile? Is it robust enough to not just be green? but to hold up under man-made and natural catastrophes. Lo and behold, climate change is a natural catastrophe. A tsunami is a natural catastrophe. But man-made ones, we were tuned about 20 years ago to think in terms of terrorism around the world. But man-made, believe it or not, is a combination and environmental, almost a combination that includes pandemics because people become part of the system that spreads it, even if it has natural causes. So engineers have begun to become more sophisticated in thinking about pandemics and other things as part of the things they have to anticipate when they commit to building resilient infrastructure. So um, that's a big, a big response with resilience and sustainability at the center of it. Um, can you give an example, Jerry, if we were trying to think of, um, say, resilience and how that engineering design might be part, and, and the moral obligation, as you mentioned, might be part of an engineering commitment um, that would respond to, a p prepare for and respond to a crisis. So is there an example that you can give us that might paint a, a picture for something in the real world? Sure. I'll, I'll 
I'll use one that's one of my favorites, and I and I I will fully admit that I, uh, when I say this, I will be a lightning rod for those who agree and violently disagree with me. Um, but we have global sea level rise. It's a fact. It will happen a little differently at different places. And we are at the beginning stages of engineers who will not just build seawalls. We're familiar with the hurricane stories. And we're going to build seawalls. But around the globe, engineers are beginning to think with more resilience and actually figure out how to embrace rising ocean levels and create coastal communities that will be resilient and think in terms of resilience as opposed to just protection. And as you know from our floating city story, we also considered whether or not in some cases engineers will recommend that a coastal city relocate. Indonesia has announced that Jakarta is no longer going to be their capital because they are not going to waste their citizens' money in protecting a city from an encroaching sea level situation. We have various indicators of people who are going to move inland or going to embrace what it means to be resilient, not just protected. And those, in some cases, are going to actually begin to move offshore because you can create a resilient community sea-based, sounds far-fetched, but that work is beginning, there will be these options, all of which will be less about our naive assumptions that we can protect ourselves from everything because we can't. And in fact, how to be resilient, how to protect from the most catastrophic things, how to degrade gracefully, how to recover quickly, how to reconstitute all the things that make us resilient. Engineers in coastal cities are beginning that process right now and thinking through what does that actually mean. So you've taken us now into that world, um, the future world vision. Um, my guest today is Jerry Buckwalter. He's Chief Operating and Strategy Officer at American Society of Civil Engineers. Um, you're listening to the Thoughtful Technosapien, a, a mini-series within Career Buzz on CIUT. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. And um, Jerry, let's let's now move toward the future world vision. Uh, and li if listeners want to check it out while they're while they're listening, right? I've, I've got it up here: futureworldvision.org. And and so you you've now mentioned this floating cities, and uh, I think people would be surprised to see that the American Society of Civil Engineers is putting this front and center. Um, you know, it seems like it's so far out. Um, although you just told us the story of Jakarta and, and other coastal cities. Um, so what, what led to ASCE putting Future World Vision out, and why start with floating cities? Okay, so this was a bold move for the society. Um, engineers are renowned for being problem solvers and safeguarding, particularly in safety. Uh, so we are like the guardians of safety for infrastructure, and we solve problems every day. And society relies on us to do that. No one wants a bridge to collapse. No one wants these kinds of disasters in our infrastructure. So that is a commitment that the uh, civil engineers make. But 
after a lot of research, we became convinced that the world is going to change fairly dramatically over, let's say, about a 50-year period of time. And one of the ways we get ready for that is to take some small portion of our time and thoughtfully consider potential future communities. We call them city worlds, scenarios that we developed after doing a great deal of in-depth research. Because by doing so, it helps us in the, as you described it, the anticipate and prepare role, as opposed to just the problem-solving role right now. If we're not careful, the world can demand 100% of our time just to solve today's problems, and believe me, there's plenty of them to solve. But we felt compelled that it's time for us to prompt the whole profession to spend a little time beginning that anticipation and preparation process. Now, we decided to do it this way because when you see as much change as we anticipate coming in technological advancements, demographic changes, human migration patterns, uh, geopolitical movements, all of these things, um, the technology ones alone are so substantial it's probably been hundreds if not thousands of years since we've seen this many different ones all converging in what we think is about a 30 to 50 year period of time so we've always had huge changes trends we study trends all the time every industry does for their survival um but it's pretty rare to see things like internet of things artificial intelligence robotics autonomy biomedical advances that appear to be on a path to reach maturity and public adoption in the same 50-year window so the nexus of all those things means the world could look dramatically different hence we created the future world vision project to create a visualization, uh, a way to collaboratively look at potential scenarios well out into the more distant future. Because when you see this many changes, uh, it represents a unique moment in time. For a lot of people, you can take the current scenario, apply a uh, a trend that you see, a technology trend, a demographic trend, and you extrapolate over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Analytic uh, continuity holds pretty well. Things look good. But when you see this many things, you sometimes have a world that emerges 50 years from now that you just couldn't have anticipated. And this is a way of forcing ourselves to anticipate it so that we think about it. Well, it certainly um, catches the viewer's attention. This uh, little video that I'd encourage listeners to have a look at at uh, futureworldvision.org um, takes us through that first scenario, the floating cities, which you put on a nice timeline. I see from mega city to rural city to floating city to frozen city and off-planet city is where it ends. So we won't go too, too far into the future, but you've also put a few other scenarios together, one of which you mentioned right off the top, 
um, with the dispersed settlements and progressive megacities. So there's a few different scenarios that you've considered as things change here. So can you describe them? And then I want to come back to the you know engineering in times of crisis and the uncontrollable global events that might trigger the need to think about these. So what, what, first, what were the scenarios that you considered? So when we did our research, we created four scenarios, um, and they're just representative. And again, I want to always remind people, we're not trying to predict the future. Um, so this is not a probabilistic exercise. In fact, we deliberately tease out very different scenarios because we want to force ourselves to think about it. So we have a resilient city is one that does a lot of the right things, maybe as a coastal city, you know, governance morphs to what it needs to be for the benefit of the citizens, and it's really healthy. We also had what we called um, dispersed settlements, where in fact, society can fracture, and people don't want to be in a megacity, don't want to, that, they don't want to be part of the urbanization pattern that we've seen emerging around the world. And so those become highly virtual, people still pretty healthy, but in smaller communities. We actually created this kind of future megacity as well, um, where, again, we have this huge verticality that's actually driven by new materials, heights that we can't even imagine right now. Uh, and what does that kind of highly personalized digital environment look like? And then lastly, we created a dysfunctional one, enclaves, dysfunctional enclaves, where in fact, if we're not careful, we can do what the world's done for thousands of years and create a world of haves and have-nots and only accelerate that. And so by teasing out what do sheltered enclaves of those who can afford the best versus those who can't, what does that look like under extreme conditions? So we deliberately did that. So I laugh because under today's environment, I feel like I'm in that distributed uh, settlements um, with the social distancing that we're doing. But I'm reminded of our unequal enclaves where if we're not careful, those who are on one side of the digital divide will do just fine during this time of crisis. That's about 20, 25% of the world, and the others are not going to have such an easy time. Their, their, their impact is far worse than ours, and I very much worry about that. And what we teased out in unequal enclaves reminds me of that. So it's a way to get that at the forefront of our minds so that even as we deal with today's crisis, we are thinking about that longer-term impact. Now, all of those, to some extent, are boiled into the visual scenario. So you will see in our floating city and our mega city and our frozen city, we're actually going to tease out some communities that have elements of a resilient city or an unequal enclave because we want to tease that out in very visually different ways. You know, it's 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 pretty fascinating reading. And uh, again, I'd encourage listeners to have a look and, and learn about that. But, you know, bringing it back to today's situation... How, how did you take into account these kind of potential um, uncontrollable global events like a pandemic? You know, what sort of crises did you imagine? And then how did engineers in particular respond by coming up with these scenarios? So this was interesting. Uh, uh, 
I'm beginning to feel prescient, uh, prescient in that uh, uh, we certainly didn't anticipate this when we did this work uh, that started in 2018. Um, but we looked at over 100 trends and we decided which ones we would model and we narrowed down those down to a smaller list that would be the biggest drivers of infrastructure issues. But in addition to that, we fully recognize that there are some events that are so disruptive and relatively uncontrollable. We had to pick some. So we actually built into our scenarios three of those. One was a global pandemic of some sort. One was a GMO food disaster. And one was a kind of dictator-driven regime violent change that spread around the globe. We weren't predicting it. We didn't have any basis for where in our timeline we put it. We just wanted to put those three proxies for disruptive global events into our scenarios so that as civil engineers designed and thought about designing for optimal societal benefit, a mega city or a floating city, they would also be reminded that something unexpected like that could happen. And was their design robust, resilient, and sustainable, even if those kinds of things happened? We picked those three as, as a proxy and we built them in at several points. Can you, especially with the global pandemic, What's an example of how that might have been taken into account, the way engineers might have thought about something like as huge as what we're going through now? And what might that look like in one of the scenarios that you've created? Well, I'll give you a couple of ways that we explored the possible impact of a pandemic. One was we looked at people who would not be making contact, and therefore there would be a huge ramp up, a quantum leap in those who would be doing virtual teleworking. Lo and behold, that's easy. We took a look at what does public transit look like when in fact you want the world to be moving toward economic, sustainable public transit, but under a pandemic, people want to be back in their cars because they want to be socially distant from those who they otherwise would have been seated next to on a plane or a train. So we looked at that kind of factor. What would that look like under those conditions? Look at things like, but why wouldn't robotic delivery of goods all of a sudden ramp up and clear regulatory hurdles that right now holds it back because people simply wouldn't want to go to the store. So, we looked at how some of those things, again, typically phenomena we already see emerging, but all of a sudden they're on steroids. <laughs> they're happening at a really accelerated rate. And so that's the way civil engineers would look at the virtual infrastructure, the telecom structure, the transit public structure, or the robotic systems both driverless cars, robotic delivery, or if, if a pandemic goes longer, how does construction start to happen by robotic methods where the designers are actually not on the site? Things like that 
how how will those things get accelerated under a pandemic? Because our our actual conclusion was those examples would happen anyway, but instead of a 50-year cycle, all of a sudden they become a 10 or a 15-year cycle. That's what civil engineers have to think about because it transforms their industry more rapidly than they would have anticipated. That's right. some examples of a pandemic effect. Right on. And I know in each of those scenarios, you give the 10-year, 25-year, and 50-year considerations, right. which makes it really interesting reading. Um, my guest today is Jerry Buckwalter. He's Chief Operating and Strategy Officer at American Society of Civil Engineers here on the Thoughtful Technosapien uh, mini-series within Career Buzz. I'm your host, Mark Franklin, here on CIUT 89.5 FM in the Toronto area, worldwide at CIUT.FM, and check for the uh, podcast as well, Career Buzz. And if you want to find more back episodes, not only of Career Buzz, but also of the Thoughtful Technosapien, uh, please click the podcast link at careercycles.com, um, or you can subscribe to Career Buzz on your favorite podcast app. Um, to really uh, to catch a really interesting edition of the Thoughtful Technosapien, check the September 9th episode with Franz Newland on stewardship in space engineering. Um, let's come back, uh, Jerry Buckwalter, to our, our conversation. I know you just took us through the future world vision picture. Let me just back up with you for a minute and understand, you know, how, how did you get here? And, and you know, there, everybody has their career story and a few turning points in it. I know you worked for um, uh, the U.S.-based defense contractor um, for many years, Northrop Grumman. What's a couple of turning points, Jerry, in your career story? And, and what did you learn about dealing with crises in, in those turning points? Well, I'll give you two thoughts here. Uh, one, I've always lived in kind of the engineering or technology community for a very long time and was very fortunate to have worked at a company before coming to ASCE that was a truly high-tech company working on very advanced systems. So uh, it was wonderful to be at a company. Uh, and what I learned there and in my brief time here at ASCE is technologists and engineers are great problem solvers. Uh, they can tackle amazing problems and come up with amazing solutions. And that is wonderful. Engineers and can also get better at what I call long-term critical thinking. And that's where I've spent a good bulk of my career. Helping engineers take some time and think about the future, but think about it in a very disciplined way. I don't, I'm not interested in engineers becoming, you know, future fiction writers. I'm interested in engineers thinking about things with a great deal of diligence and then thinking through what they're doing today that might be still highly relevant 50 years from now, but maybe discovering that what they're doing today might be irrelevant or partially relevant 50 years from now because the baby steps we take today among the world's leading technologists, scientists, and engineers 
can help shape the society we all prefer to have. And so I've spent a good deal of my career, and it was inspired by thinking of how to help technology and engineering people think in a more disciplined way about longer-term futures. The other thing that was a turning point for me and happened really in the last 10 years was my personal discovery that no matter how much I thought about that, the world wasn't really listening. And so I've discovered how important it is to become a storyteller. Man is a storyteller. Back as far as you wish to go, we all just find new means, new media by which we tell our stories. And I became convinced that in the current era and the future era, I had to get better at taking those things that I might think about as a thoughtful homo sapien, if you will, and convert it into something that everybody can wrap their head around and embrace and think through who don't have the time to spend on it that I have. And so I was inspired that that becomes our obligation as thoughtful, critical thinkers to convert that into the way stories get internalized by people mentally and emotionally. And so that's why I made the move. Now, the other thing I discovered that in moments of crisis, I hate to say it quite this way, but never waste a good crisis. This is the moment in time where those things that you know society needs to understand about where we're going as a society and the pros and cons of the outcomes we might have in quality of life, these are the moments where you can take the crisis because we're at a moment in time where some of the regulatory barriers get lifted. Some of the normal pace of development gets lifted because we have this urgent crisis. And this is the time when we spot that phenomena which is going to occur more rapidly and we use this moment to not only move it more rapidly, but help inform all of society on the pros and cons and all the things we have to be alert to. And so I was I was integrally excuse me, integrally evolved in the recovery in the United States after 9-11 in a variety of ways. And it was a moment in time where at least we could not only do some protective and resilient measures along with our allies around the world, but we could also really help inform the public at large as to the normal everyday kinds of things people all can do to make a country more resilient from that perspective. This is a moment in time where once we get through a few weeks of the panic and the misinformation, we have an opportunity to well inform the public and prepare them for what being resilient looks like. And I've always found in the in the world, people, when informed properly, once they get through the emotion of the first couple of weeks, respond really well to doing the right things, mm. uh, with few exceptions. And this is a moment where we get to do it. There's, there's a real need for the engineering community to think about the value tensions 
that are inherent in these kinds of engineering projects. And, and you just pointed out this um, long-term critical thinking, shaping society, like the needs uh, and what you've learned moving through your own career. And that's on the one hand, you know, that engineers can have that role to shape society. And on the other hand, sometimes engineers themselves and society simply looks at engineers as the problem solvers. And so right. there's, a, there's a tension right there. So how can, how can the engineering community itself and maybe engineering education respond to this to kind of help mediate that tension? Well, I think it's, it's the way to do it is to think in terms of, uh, of the impact of change uh, that might come over a long period of time and looking at its impact right now. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Uh, let's look at the current one today. We've observed engineers want transportation to be more sustainable. So we always advocate for better forms of public transit, group transit of all sorts. We reach a crisis like this, and I know two weeks ago, before we went into a, more of a lockdown situation in Washington, D.C., we saw transit riders diminishing and actually more people in their cars, the opposite of what you'd normally want under the value of sustainable green engineering. But this is the moment where we can say, have we thought enough about what it would take to create surface transportation infrastructure for the driverless car, which would be greener, would be more efficient, and could provide that balance point so that you wouldn't have public transit, but you could have this blend. This is a classic way engineers are at the heart of that discussion. So what does a surface transportation system look like that could embrace driverless cars faster in balance with public transit to balance the value tension between sustainability, green transit, green transportation, and the need for social distancing? It's a classic one. How do we spread that sense of, of the larger picture of engineering, of being able to shape society and respond in these bigger picture ways to the, the needs not only of today but of the future and in light of global unpredictable events? You know, you're, you're involved with thinking about education, you're thinking about working with other engineers and empowering them with education and professional development. Um, so, so how can we, how can we help people understand that larger role and and still understand the need to be responsible and um, understand the potential misuses of technology, the way technology can backfire, um, and to guard against them? Well, I th I think of a couple things. One, never keep in mind that what you do under crisis conditions to solve an immediate crisis might, in fact, be detrimental in the long term. Uh, view of things. So be, everybody should remain sensitive to that. That's my first one. Because, yes, doing triage is important. It doesn't mean you run an entire hospital that way over a long period of time. Engineers have to think in a similar way. Solve today's problems during the crisis, but don't give up on your long-term values of sustainability and resilience. Blend those in and think about them in triage versus long-term kind of spectrum uh, thinking. The other thing I would say is 
no discipline solves these problems alone. Multidisciplinary thinking and collaboration are the way the world solves these problems. We are finishing a hundred years of global history that I would describe as the era of specialization. And in doing so, we have had huge scientific and medical advances, but we lost one thing in the process, and that is we all turned to somebody else to solve our problems instead of being holistic thinkers. The moment during crisis where you realize it's time to still value specialization, but to begin to embrace multidisciplinary collaboration, because it's only when you take engineers and you put them together with sociologists or policymakers that actually solve this problem of the right balance of autonomous cars versus public transit, for instance. That is so important. Nobody should try to be the John Wayne hero themselves. Get yourself in connection with the other disciplines and work together to solve the problem. Right on. So really promoting that multidisciplinary holistic perspective as opposed to the narrow problem solver is, is a really right. great place to start for the engineering community. Yep. And sometimes that's two parts of the brain, so we all have to get used to getting better at that. Um, Jerry Buckwalter, I know we only have a few minutes left uh, before we got to wrap up. So let, let me um, bring you like way up and just ask your, your opinion about the, the default trajectory of society's relationship with technology. You know, some people are quite optimistic about it. Some are quite pessimistic. Um, if you were to sort of say where your personal opinion is on the default trajectory of society's relationship with technology... Where are you on that optimism-pessimism scale? I'm right in the middle. I, I Literally, I, I can envision the most dysfunctional scenarios, and I can envision the most optimistic benefits. And guess what? They always come with both. For example, the digitization of everything, and all its autonomy comes from that, everything else comes from that. The benefits to society in productivity and efficiency are overwhelming. And so it's unlikely that we'll ever reverse that trend. However, the digitization of everything brings with it a vulnerability for digital hacking, if you will, or misbehavior that we have only scratched the surface on. It's not either or. We will embrace digitization because of its efficiency and productivity, and it will affect infrastructure, but we will have to get a lot better at avoiding the dysfunctional part of it because it's inherently there. So I, I clearly say I'm in both camps. So is there anything, if you had a magic wand, uh, you know, that you could wave to ensure that we're going in the right direction with our relationship with technology so that it's beneficial for all and that it avoids the worst problems and misuses. What, what would you do with the magic wand? My magic wand is embrace the value tension that you described. Don't avoid it. Don't stop listening to those who have a different value system than you have. Talk it through and embrace that tension and work your way through it. Jerry Buckwalter, thanks so much for joining us here on this episode of the Thoughtful Technosapien. It's my pleasure, Mark. Glad to have been here. Thank you. 
Given the importance of our relationship with technology and the potential amazing rewards or catastrophic outcomes that might result, how can we be more intentional to steward our technologies toward the world we want to see? Hopefully our conversation today on the Thoughtful Technosapien has resulted in some ideas for you as you consider your own role in this challenge. Today's episode of the Thoughtful Technosapien was developed in collaboration with Engineering Change Lab, a catalyst for change in the engineering community, thanks to Mark Abbott and Arlene Williams. You've been listening to the Thoughtful Technosapien, a mini-series of Career Buzz on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. You can find out more about me at careercycles.com. If you have comments on today's show, please send me an email, mark at careercycles.com. Thanks today to guest Jerry Buckwalter. Technical production today was by Miku Betlam. For more episodes, click the podcast button at careercycles.com or subscribe to Career Buzz on your favorite podcast app. Catch Career Buzz every Wednesday. 11 a.m. on CIUT. I'm Mark Franklin. Thanks for listening.